0: One, one, two,
1: three.
0: Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode.
2: Uh, my name is Susan Price, and I'll be chairing the forum tonight. Before we begin, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from Baramatagal land, uh, land of the Darug people. Uh, This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, I'd like to pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and also pay respect to any First Nations uh, people, uh, comrades joining us tonight for this forum. Uh, Well, thanks. Thanks everyone for being here tonight. Uh, we've organised this forum in response to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, and certainly the invasion is drawing condemnation uh, the world over, and calls a mounting for on Russia to immediately withdraw uh, its troops from Ukraine and for all parties to return to talks to de-escalate and work towards resolving uh, this crisis. I think it's fair to say that this conflict can't really be properly understood without examining um, the relentless drive by the United States and its Western allies to expand NATO uh, up to Russia's border and encircle it militarily. And Tonight's discussion will uh, cover some of this ground uh, and also seek to answer the question as to how we can develop a united left response to these events and contribute towards building an anti-war movement that can oppose the war in Ukraine and militarism in all its forms, including that of the United States, its Western allies, whose actions, I think it's fair to say, have only escalated uh, conflict in the region. So we're very pleased to have two speakers with us tonight. uh, William Briggs. Uh, William is a political economist and he is a, a Green Left contributor uh, William has consistently written uh, coverage uh, in Green Left on this conflict so looking forward to hearing from William and then we will hear from Sam Wainwright. Uh, Sam uh, is normally based in uh, uh, Noongar country in Fremantle but's joining us tonight from Canberra and Sam is one of the Socialist Alliance national co-conveners so uh, thank you Thanks to both of you for taking the time tonight. And uh, each of the speakers will have about 20 minutes to uh, speak, and then we'll open the meeting up to questions and discussion. Welcome, William Briggs, and hand it over to you. Thanks, William.
3: Thank you very much. I would uh, just first of all like to acknowledge that uh, I'm speaking on the land of the Waterrun people of the Kulin Nation, where sovereignty has never been ceded. right, the fact that we are here having this forum is of itself a terrible thing. And it begs the question, how do we get here? What is going on and what can we do about it? Now, Marx once famously said that philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. And the point, of course, is to change it. What is happening in Ukraine needs to be interpreted. The forces in play need to be understood and their actions analysed. Russia, of course, must stand condemned for its actions. But ultimately, it is the USA and imperialism that remains the real enemy for us all. First, we need to interpret and then to change things. But that very first step is to understand why things are unfolding in this terrible way. Because if we were just to base our understanding of events on the hyperbole of the mass media. We might well be forgiven for just thinking that Putin woke up one morning, crabby, possibly hung over and said, oh, I think I'll send the tanks in. Because our media ultimately leaves us feeling that history just began with this morning's newspaper. Or we might see Putin acting in a way to restore the Soviet Union albeit a Soviet Union that has no pretence of supporting the working class that actually built the thing in the first place. We may be told many things, but what we won't see is any serious attempt at analysis. And why? Because the media is an arm of the state and has a job to do. And in moments of extreme crisis, it plays a crucial role in supporting the state and by definition, capitalism. But even so, The level of pro-war propaganda being poured out is extreme and it has the unashamed intent of convincing the public if the crisis gets sharp enough, war is almost inevitable. There are some absolutes in all what is going on and the Russian invasion cannot under any circumstances be accepted, even if it could and might be explained. Now that's clear. It's also clear that the current Ukrainian government is in large part a product of imperialist intrigue. The $5 billion that went into funding the anti-government forces in Ukraine in 2013, 2014, was for the US money well spent. And the other thing that ought to be clear is that the US and US imperialism has been able magnificently to maneuver things in such a way as to appear to be the good guy in all of this. Now, I once knew someone who, whenever asked a question remotely to do with politics, would look off into the middle distance, contemplate, and then sagely reply, it's all to do with imperialism. He was generally wrong, but this time, had he been asked, well, I think we know the answer. And finding the right starting point on a timeline for this crisis shouldn't be that difficult. And it goes, much further back than the debacle of 2013, 2014, and the installation of the Western, pro-Western government in Ukraine. Significant moment, of course, is the collapse of the Soviet Union, but we need to go back a fair way earlier than that. And that moment in time was when NATO was formed in 1949, ostensibly to act as a security blanket against possible Soviet expansion. And then just six years later, when that mirror organization the Warsaw Treaty organization was formed to act as a security blanket against NATO aggression. Now the Warsaw Treaty was of course dissolved in 1991 as the Soviet Union was getting its affairs in order. NATO on the other hand did not it never went away and just got stronger. Socialism went away and NATO to fight socialism stayed. The Soviet Union became Russia, Russia became capitalist, and yet NATO became stronger. Now, Russia was never meant to be an enemy, but the US seemed to be just making sure, just in case. And Russia, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, was seen as a potential El Dorado for capitalism. Vast resources appeared to be just there for the taking. And the best case picture for the US was to have Russia as a virtual reservoir and quarry. It's crudely put, but that's the way they were seeing things. In much the same way, that China, after it opened up to the West, was to become one huge workshop. It was for the US to be hegemon heaven. But of course, things don't always work out according to the script. China just didn't cooperate in the end, became fully capitalist system and is now set to eclipse the USA as global capitalist power. And things went fairly awry in Russia as well. Putin, his nationalist and authoritarian regime arrived and Russia quickly became that threat to the advance of America's vision. Consequently, NATO began its eastward march. The former Soviet territories became NATO's borders with Russia and that familiar encirclement and militarization of the region ensued. The establishment of a pro-Western government in Ukraine was just the next inevitable step in a campaign aimed at weakening Russia. And in the lead up to this conflict, this war, Russia made two fairly simple demands. One, that NATO forces would would withdraw to the 1997 borders and that Ukraine would not become part of NATO. Now, this was not some bullying stance against a sovereign state, but it was simply a way of reminding the world of a deal that had been stitched up between the Soviet Union when it was crumbling and the United States. James Baker, we all know the Secretary of State in the Bush senior administration, fixed the deal with Gorbachev East Germany would become okay for NATO, but that now famous, not one inch eastwards slogan became for a little while a fact. But today, just about all former Soviet allies are part of that NATO alliance. And we've got to remember that the USA currently has more than 750 military bases in 80 countries. Russia is ringed by these bases and is China. By contrast, China has just four bases outside its territory and Russia has 10, although seven of these are in former Soviet republics. But even so, the Russian invasion had a certain sense of inevitability about it. As the Putin regime gathered strength, there was a renewed call to patriotism, nationalism, and symbols of past glories. All states, if they are to survive, need to build a sense of legitimacy around them. We give you the right to govern us and you offer us something tangible in return, a social contract entered into. In the case of Russia, Putin maintained legitimacy by use of the symbolism, both Tsardom and Stalinism. Russia was great. Russia is great. Russia will be great. And it was a heady mix for a people who felt seriously let down and humiliated by the loss of power and prestige after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And when the carpetbaggers arrived, when the oligarchs crept up out of the mire, when life expectancy plunged and when poverty just stalked stalked the country. And for Putin, foreign policy is inevitably so closely tied to domestic policy. While his foreign policy might be questioned and is certainly questionable, It makes sense from the point of view of trying to maintain credibility and legitimacy at home. Whereas the US interprets foreign policy in a very way that is very different, not just different to Russia, but to everywhere else on earth. It began its rise when imperialism was at its peak and it learned how to play the game. Its foreign policy, naturally enough, includes political, diplomatic, economic elements, as do all states. There's nothing strange there. But force projection and military power has always been central to all American strategic thinking. The issue of the bases is just a case in point. The most recent figures point to an annual military global budget of more than $1.8 trillion, with the US making up about half of that, that amount. And it's constantly pressuring its allies to up the spending rate. And most disturbingly, just the other day, Germany declared that its percentage of GDP for the military was going to bump from 1.4 to over 2% of its GDP. It changes the whole nature of Europe. And in 2019, we've got to remember that the US scrapped its Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, the treaty that limited, short, medium range weaponry between Russia and and the United States. And at the moment that it broke that, that deal, it began production of new low yield nuclear warheads for its Trident missiles. The weapons are shamelessly referred to as usable nuclear weapons, and they are now in place. And the militarization of the globe There's so much part of US foreign policy, didn't just happen of itself. There's been a constant and all-pervasive theme in US policy that has been that of dominating global order. Now there have been moments when these tactics have changed and the doctrine has been presented in different forms. We've just had a quarter of a century of a war on terror. It was a military doctrine that focused less on global relations but still ended up with 360,000 civilian deaths. But then America's military doctrine shifted back to one that was concerned more directly on the core business of global power. And in 2018, the US adopted what it described as a national defence strategy and has been improving upon that ever since. Its aim is to ensure that America remains the preeminent military power in the world. That's a quote from the document as well as ensuring that, quote, the balance of power remains in our favour. It also declares that it aims to advance an international order that is most conducive to our security and prosperity and preserve access to markets. I repeat, access to markets, they're quite open. And one of the chief architects of this new doctrine is one Eldridge Colby. he recently bobbed up again in our region was focusing particularly on china was at the time of the quad meeting in melbourne when he let it be known that the us was having serious trouble selling the idea of a war with russia to its own people and that only 13 percent of americans considered it a particularly good idea to go to war with russia and he made the point that is so often kept from our gaze that war and the preparations for war can be calculated in terms of economic gain and loss. And then just three years ago, soon after, three years after the defence policy was put in place, Colby published what is an astonishing article in the US foreign affairs magazine. Now the magazine devoted an entire issue, the issues of nuclear conflict. And Colby's article was called, if you want peace, prepare for nuclear war. A strategy for the new great power rivalry. That would have been nice to think that he was offering us a warning to pull back from the abyss, but that was never his intent. The article appeared just days before the US announced that it would be withdrawing from the INF Treaty. And there are some some significant dates in all of this. 2014. Just months after the events in Ukraine that brought the right-wing nationalist pro-US government to power, the US announced its trillion-dollar overhaul of nuclear weapons systems to take 10 years. Other powers, Russia, regarded these, with these decisions with a little bit of trepidation, but the threat of war, be it in Asia or Europe, moved a significant step closer in 2018 when the USA quietly announced its new military strategy. To, to great power competition. Now, US strategic thinking in Europe and especially in relation to Russia and Ukraine is transparent and is linked to maintaining power, economic, political and military. A weak Russia obviously means a stronger America. There has been a clear policy of shrinking the territory that had once been the USSR and drawing former allies into the orbit of NATO. The history of Russia, both Soviet and post-Soviet, has been a history of overt expressions of nationalism. It has a view of itself as a great power and deserving of great power status. And in this, it's not particularly different to that of the United States. But its recent history of Russian-Ukrainian relations certainly reflect Russia's nationalist agenda and a need to remain a prominent global force for good or ill. And Russia sees itself threatened by Western encroachments, and rightly so. It's ringed by NATO bases. US, Canadian, UK, German forces all share the load of battle groups in the Black Sea. And bases are now close to the Russian border in Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. There are currently over 70,000 US troops in Europe. And before the invasion, the US was active in Ukraine, training Ukrainian forces. And now we have the invasion. While motivations might be able to be accepted, the act is and remains reprehensible. Whatever happens in the immediate future, time alone can tell. Whether US inspired sanctions will affect the Russian economy to the extent that it may have to reconsider its actions are unknown, unknowable. There has, of course, been a run on the Russian banks, the stock market is in tatters, and an already weak economy is certainly suffering. The future of gas sales, however, remains uncertain because capitalism has to keep on ticking over. Whether the invasion will end in Russia securing its much desired buffer zone against further NATO encroachment is again unknowable. What the fate will be for Ukraine, either as a unified state or a fragmented one, is also impossible to forecast. What then would be the domestic ramifications for Putin if he is not successful? How repressive would Russia become if legitimacy was stripped away? If he is successful, then what does he do with a hostile, occupied territory and one that is consistently supported by the West? How does he respond to a future with Russia marked out as a pariah state? All of this obviously remains uncertain. There's only one thing that is clear and that is the role that US imperialism has been playing. Now, it's something of a cliche to say that in war there are no winners, except in this case, it would appear that imperialism is that winner. And that is why regardless of the wrongs of Russia and they are legion, this conflict the blame must be laid squarely at the feet of the real criminals. And we know who they are. As my old friend would have said, it's all about imperialism. And thank you.
2: Thanks, William. Talk and uh, welcome to anyone who joined us during uh, William's talk. We're going to hand over now to Sam Wainwright, as I mentioned before, Sam is one of the national co-conveners of Socialist Alliance and Sam will uh, have 20 minutes to speak to us. So thanks, Sam. Over to you.
4: Thanks. Uh, Thanks very much, Susan. Thanks to William and thanks to everyone who's uh, watching this evening. All right. Well, look, I won't pretend to be a particular expert on Ukrainian or Russian history, politics and Economics. I've taken it, followed it more closely than most probably do, uh, partly because of a family connection. My mum in law is from Odessa uh, in southwest Ukraine. Um, But I can say that I got one thing wrong. I was certain up until the very eve of the invasion that Putin would not attempt a full fledged invasion or occupation of Ukraine. That just seemed to me to be such um, an implausibly massive overreach that it wouldn't happen and put it down to US hype. So clearly I got that wrong. But one thing we are all gonna have to become experts on is the consequences, the political consequences, the real world consequences for any of us uh, fighting to make a better world, a more just and peaceful world. Uh, And the consequences are mostly negative. Now let's start with at first principles. The Russian invasion of Ukraine violates international law. It tramples over the rights of the Ukrainian people to democratic self-determination. As such, the Ukrainian people have a right to resist the invasion. That said, the war can only be a catastrophe for people in both countries. Now, in examining the background to this war, I want to do it by picking up four factors that are important for understanding the context of the invasion. So that we don't just ascribe it to, you know, Putin's madness or megalomania. Um, things that explain it, put it in context, without tempering the fact that we have to condemn the invasion for what it is. Now, the first of those is Western hypocrisy and double standards. Now, I'm sure you've all got your own list of examples of those things. I'll just run a sh- run through one that I brainstormed on on, on the back of an envelope this afternoon. So we witness. Such grotesque spectac- spectacles, as the fact that the very same countries that are now welcoming uh, refugees fleeing from Ukraine, like Holland and hung- Hungary, were only last year literally beating and tear gassing refugees from Syria and Afghanistan trying to flee over the same borders. And more recently, we've seen uh, uh, students from uh, from Africa uh, in Ukraine being denied um, be- being denied asylum acro- across the borders into in- into Poland, Hungary, as well. Australia. US and the UK, well, what have we got in common? The illegal invasion of Iraq, that cost perhaps one million lives, utterly shattered Iraqi society and created the basis for the emergence of the Islamic State. A whole string of US interventions um, across the globe, including invasions, destabilization, coup mongering, uh, sanctions, and many more. There's another hypocrisy too, that is that Western banks have been very happy to accept the billions of dollars from Russian oligarchs um, over the last two decades. Even after the devastating war in Chechnya, in which 80,000 civilians were killed, it didn't cause a ripple. And we should remember that when Russian oligarchs take their ill-gotten fortunes and invest them in Swiss, British and US banks, instead of investing them back in Russia, they are extracting wealth from Russian workers, keeping Russia relatively poor, a relatively poor and undeveloped country and actually making the West richer. Um, It's no wonder that Tory politicians, up until a week ago, were accepting donations from these very Russian oligarchs. The economic order in which we live is based upon the division between the wealthy industrialized world with about 50% of the world's population that suck wealth out of the poorer countries of the former colonial world or global south. Um, And as we know, that world order is enforced with violence every single day of the week. So we're right to be furious with the sanctimonious hypocrisy of Western leaders. They have no problem with violence and, and destruction in U- Ukraine. What they are concerned about is their own economic and strategic interests. But none of that makes the Russian invasion right. Um, and that's that that that's a point we have to you know we can't we can't we can't dodge that reality. Um, the second one is you. The second issue I want to briefly canvas is the nature of Ukrainian politics and society, because that's had a fair bit of airing in left-wing circles as well. Now, of course, Ukraine has a pro-capitalist government, but so does Russia and Australia. Now, it's certainly true that right-wing nationalism is a problem in Ukraine, uh, and democratic space is compromised in Ukraine um, compared to Australia. Uh, While the genuinely sort of far-right or fascist political parties only achieve about 2% of the vote in the election, Uh, Well, certainly in the last elections, uh, they do have armed militias, which gives them far more weight uh, in Ukrainian politics than they should have. There's also been the anti communism laws, which basically ban, you know, even the words socialism or communism uh, being in um, political organization names, you know, ripping down of Soviet era statues, the restoration and glorification of of Nazi collaborators, uh, particularly in the west of the country. However, it's wrong to jump ahead like Putin does, and some left-wingers do, and to say that Nazi or fascist ideas are dominant or predominant uh, in Ukraine today. Uh, Zelensky, who won the presidential elections in 2019, is relatively moderate by Ukrainian standards, and he actually defeated the more right-wing nationalist incumbent Poroshenko, who emerged out of the uh, Euromaidan uh, movement. At the same time, more right-wing nationalist forces control the parliament and they've blocked some of Zelensky's more progressive measures uh, and are also fiercely opposed to any kind of settlement compromise in the Donbass, which they uh, consider as a betrayal. The other important thing that's worth noting is that Zelensky actually won an overwhelming majority in the Russian speaking areas of the country in 2019. And Poroshenko only won uh, significant majority in the very far West of the country. So that underlies the fact that we have a slightly ludicrous situation in which Putin claims, uh, claim, claims to be invading Ukraine to liberate Russian speakers from the president that they voted for. Uh, the only thing more ludicrous in actual fact is the idea that Putin, who bases his own political project on socially conservative right-wing authoritarianism is any sort of person to carry out a denazification process in Ukraine or anywhere. Now, there is a serious problem with right-wing nationalism in Ukraine, but the one thing that will not solve it is a deeply unpopular Russian invasion. Uh, I think we can safely say that will only make things worse. The third factor is Russia as a counterweight to the United States in world affairs. Now, Russia functions as a political and military counterweight to the US influence, albeit not on the scale that the former Soviet Union did. And sometimes this is a good thing. For anyone who detests the trail of wars and destruction left by the U.S. and its vassal states across the world, seeing the U.S. getting a black eye every now and then can be appealing. And for left-wing governments in Latin America being crushed by illegal U.S. sanction regimes and the constant threat of invasion, Russian trade and military assistance is a lifeline. But once again, we have to remind ourselves that our enemy's enemy is not our friend. Uh, and the Ukrainian people's right to self-determination can't be traded off um, for Russia's supposed place in the world. Fourth is this question of NATO expansionism, which William's already uh, looked at in some detail, so I'll try to be brief on this one. Now, as he said, the West clearly contradicted promises made in 1991 um, by expanding right up to, to Russia's borders. And I think even if Russia had a liberal capitalist democracy, the Russian establishment and the Russian people would still rightly perceive this as a threat. The US, are, the US and NATO are trying to hem Russia in, both militarily, but just as important economically. Uh, this is an extremely hostile posture and it has helped push the situation towards war. That was, and that was the main line that us left-wingers were pushing before w- war broke out, because our, our, our primary job is to put the spotlight on the war, warmongers in our parliaments. Um, but that balance has has clearly changed with with, with the invasion. It's Putin that has chosen war at this time and place. And there's no way that you could argue that that there's an immediate threat to civilian lives in Russia that was so dire that it justified the death and destruction being unleashed in Ukraine as some kind of defensive measure. And contradictorily, of course, the invasion of Ukraine will actually boost the appeal of NATO in neighboring countries and convince many people in them that they need to remain allied with the US military strategy, not just in Europe, but across the world. In, in fact, I would say that the invasion of Ukraine is the biggest propaganda gift to the US and NATO that you could possibly imagine. Uh, how much Putin you know, was aware of that, I don't know. Well, it's often said that politics is concentrated economics and that war is an extension of economics. So what are the economic drivers behind this conflict? And I say that understanding that uh, political and military conflict isn't just a mechanical expression of of economic tensions uh, or economic drivers, but it has that lying behind it. And to answer that question, we need need to look at the nature of the Russian economy uh, and ask what is the Putin project and why is it in conflict with the West? So let's start with where Russia fits into the global economy. And that means starting with the restoration of capitalism in Russia. While the Soviet Union was never as high tech and as industrialized as the West, it did succeed in in industrializing. And this achievement was significantly destroyed with the restoration of capitalism. Opened up to competition, branches of industry that were not as efficient as US, West European or Japanese multinationals were either destroyed or absorbed by these competitors. The industrial output of the former Soviet Union collapsed in just a few years to be about that of Belgium. Which is just staggering. Those assets whose value were not completely destroyed and could turn a profit were privatized, hoovered up by opportunist scumbags, basically, often former senior Soviet bureaucrats um, who, who turned themselves into the owners of these new capitalist um, conglomerates. This process of deindustrialization turned Russia and the other former Soviet republics into countries whose economies made them members of the so-called semi-periphery. Economies whose industrialization is similar to Brazil, Turkey, South Africa, or China. So wealthier and more industrialized than most countries of the so-called global south, but still nowhere near the really super high-tech wealthy countries of Western Europe, North America, Japan, and Australia. And labor productivity gives a, a, a good explainer. So labor productivity, you measure, What's the value of goods or services that a worker produces in an hour, for instance? Now, a a German or a Japanese uh, or a US worker produces four four times as much value in goods and services in an hour than a worker does in Russia because the worker in those high-tech countries is, is plugged into a whole lot of technology. There's all this capital embedded in the work that they do and surrounding them. Now, despite that, the Russian oligarchs in the early 1990s, were still hoping to be welcomed into the Western capital Capitalist Club as equals, as equal competitors, that is to say, who would get their slice of the pie. In fact, in the early 1990s, Russian leaders seriously suggested the possibility that Russia itself might join NATO, but that door was shut in their face. Meanwhile, the process of privatisation, and the IMF shock therapy absolutely smashed Russian living standards. GDP fell by 45% mortality increased by 50%, male life expectancy declined significantly, government revenue declined by 50%, crime and crime went through the roof. And inevitably this produced a political backlash in Russia. And that brings us to the Putin question, Putin's economic and political project, which is to halt Russia's decline. Now benefiting from high oil prices, Putin paid off Russia's debt and doubled wages. He reasserted the supremacy of the state And he jailed oligarchs who were were not prepared to play by the new Team Russia rules. Putin restored a sense of national pride. And that's why his his approval ratings have consistently been, up till now anyway, between 60 and 80%, which are figures that most Western leaders could only dream of. Whether that will endure, of course, remains another thing. But in reasserting Russia's place in the world, we have to be clear that this economic project is a thoroughly capitalist one. When commentators say that Putin is nostalgic for the Soviet Union, let's be clear, he is nostalgic for a strong centralized state, not for socialism in any form. And the economic project has meant defining the former Soviet republics and other adjoining countries as as the rightful sphere for Russian capitalists to grow their base and to grow the Eurasian Union, which is in a sort of sense, Russia's alternative to the European Union. This economic strategy has been accompanied by, by a military strategy, of course, as they all are, always are, just like the US does through NATO, AUKUS or the Quad. Now, Russia doesn't have the economic or military power to project invasions all the way across the world like the US did in Iraq, but it does seek to push out of its encirclement by the US and its allies and to expand its zone of influence and to stop more former Soviet states falling into the US's economic and military framework. And in doing so, it's prepared to meddle in the affairs of its neighbors and sometimes for terrible effect. And so examples are propping up authoritarian pro-Russian governments in former Soviet republics like Belarus and Kazakhstan, uh, hiving off bits of Georgia when it can, uh, because of the fact that Georgia has gone into the in, in, into the Western orbit, um, or propping up the Assad dictatorship in Syria. That's why for Putin, you, Ukraine cannot be pulled into NATO or the EU. It belongs to Russia and hence the insistence Uh, The the, the crazy insistence that the Ukrainian nation doesn't even exist. Obviously, US capitalism doesn't accept this. Uh, From the point of view of the US capitalists, the US is the only capitalist power that is allowed to have zones of influence, (laughs) and no one else can. Um, Now, while we must absolutely reject the US attempts at aggressively encircling and containing China and Russia, uh, this is warmongering, make no doubt about it. We shouldn't have any any particular sympathy for the Putin project either. You know, Russia may not be an imperialist power in the way that we understand Russia's place in the world economy, but Putin certainly has imperial ambitions for Russian capitalism, expansionist ambitions for imperialist capitalism. And there's nothing there's nothing remotely progressive or socialist or anti-imperialist about this in and of itself. Now, I want to briefly recap the negative consequences of Russia's invasion beyond the immediate lot. Um, loss of life and destruction. So one, it will boost the appeal of NATO in neighboring countries and justify militarism. In fact, Germany, uh, the German parliament has just announced that it's it's gonna nearly double its military expenditure. And that I believe was with the support of the SPD and Greens. Two, it makes it easier for the US and its allies to hypocritically pose as defenders of international law while they continue to unleash violence on parts of the world outside the gaze of Western media. Three, it will actually fuel far right wing nationalism everywhere. Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia. Just imagine being a socialist in an Eastern European country right now, doing the right thing, holding the line and arguing against nationalism, NATO, increased military spending and Russophobia. Four, Putin has given the biggest propaganda gift to US imperialism imaginable, imaginable, as I've mentioned before. Um, And this is gonna make it hard for the left for some time. Five, any hope Russia's capitalists had of growing their share of the pie may be blocked by sanctions, which will actually affect Russian workers the most, uh, potentially smashing their living standards without necessarily weakening Putin's grip on power. And the sanctions imposed on Iraq in 1991 are a bit of a pointer. Uh, people will remember that those sanctions imposed by the United States caused, caused the death of 200,000 children and yet Iraqi people were just so exhausted surviving to, to organize a protest movement against, against the dictatorship. Okay. All this is quite grim, but we have to face reality in, in the face um, in order to chart a way forward. I think one of the really inspiring things is the Russian peace movement. It's, it's inspiring breadth and spread. Um, it's really important for our side, I can't stress this enough, it's really important for the cause of peace and justice in the world, that, that, it's, that the Russian people call Putin to account on their own terms because consider two non mutually exclusive and rather depressing alternatives. One could be that Ukraine ends up being split into two with a right-wing nationalist pro-NATO controlled rump, perhaps with Zelensky squeezed out because he's not right-wing enough in the West and a Kremlin controlled puppet regime in the East and South of the country. Two, and these things aren't mutually exclusive, a broken and broke Russia getting sucked back into a triumphalist Western imperialist hegemony ruled by pro-Western, comprador oligarch prepared to play a subordinate role to Berlin, Washington and London, while the US has a free hand to continue its wars everywhere else in the world. They are real possibilities. In Australia, our job is to show our solidarity to Ukraine without wavering from our opposition to the military, militarism of our own rulers. I think that means campaigning to end Australia's participation in AUKUS, the Quad and ANZUS and ending the $100 billion submarine deal. We will be up against a real security propaganda scare campaign. Uh, we already have the coalition uh, trying to beat the, the khaki election drum in this country. So it's, 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 it might be a hard row to hoe at first, but that's just what we have to do. Um, it, was, you know, it was harder in the midst of the Cold War. So that's just what people who are serious about trying to create a better world have to do. At a time when climate change poses the greatest existential threat to our species has ever known, The last thing humanity needs is for precious time, resources and lives to be squandered to a war. Uh, We need to seek to understand and act. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Sam. And uh, thanks to both our speakers, William and Sam, for some fascinating and detailed talks. And I think puts us on on a good path to to our discussion. which we're about to move into. Um, Now, I would just like to, before we open up for discussion and while uh, our participants are having a bit of a think about what you'd like to say um, or questions you'd like to ask. um, Now, in order to to participate in the discussion, please put your name in the chat box uh, and I'll uh, endeavor to um, call on uh, everyone who wants to ask a question or make a brief comment uh, during the remaining time. Um, but we will have to limit contributions to a maximum of three minutes. Um, but I'd suggest that you not take three minutes if you don't need to. Uh, and I'll certainly give you the wind up um, when time's up and talk over the top of you. <laughs> so be prepared for that. Um, and uh, yeah, so put your name in the chat box, limit contributions to three minutes. And I'll just make a couple of announcements um, just while we're waiting on some uh, speakers in the chat box, Uh, just to say that uh, along with Green Left, um, Socialist Alliance is the other co-host of this forum. Uh, If you would like to find out more about the Alliance or if you'd like to participate uh, in socialism or Marxism discussions that the Alliance organizes Uh, or receive um, the Alliance's activist calendar. Um, A link is going to be put in the chat box, um, which you can click on to stay in touch. And uh, there it is. Um, And uh, just to say that uh, the Alliance is going to be standing uh, candidates uh, in several states in the upcoming federal election. So in Victoria, Western Australia, New South Wales and Queensland, Uh, If you live in any of those states and are keen to be involved, um, please get in touch. Uh, And uh, the other uh, co-host is Green Left, and I'm actually um, the international editor of Green Left. Um, If you haven't already visited Green Left's uh, website, I would encourage you to do so. We produce uh, also a a weekly hard copy magazine um, and... Published daily on uh, the web and in social media. And we also host a weekly Green Left radio show on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne, uh, as well as uh, hosting some regular podcasts. Uh, You can become a Green Left supporter. Um, We have a a monthly plan uh, which starts at $5 a month. Uh, And I think someone's going to pop a link in the chat box for how you can find out more and become a supporter of Green Left, uh, which um, if you have a look at our website, you'll see that our coverage of the Ukraine Russia crisis um, has been second to none uh, in the English language, English speaking world. Uh, And um, just to say finally, before we take our first question, that there is a global uh, week of action against war that's been called by Code Pink in the United States in conjunction with the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, Stop the War UK and other anti-war and peace organizations. And in Sydney, um, and a number of countries actually, there will be uh, rallies happening this weekend. And on Sunday, March the 6th in Sydney, if you'd like to come out and raise your voice against the war, um, you can do so. Uh, At one o'clock, I believe, Um, the rally starts at Sydney Town Hall um, on Sunday and in Newcastle um, at 2pm in Civic Park and in Melbourne, uh, the rally won't be until the 12th of March. So you can come out on the 12th at 12pm at the State Library to raise your voice against the war. Uh, okay, so I might make a couple of more announcements towards the end, but um, I think we do have a question now from Dave Bell. So over to you, Dave.
5: In looking at the facts relating to this matter, I came across a, a piece in uh, John Menager's blog. Um, and uh, he makes the... He, there's an article there by... Um, um, what's his name? Um, uh, Kevin, he's an ex-diplomat uh, uh, and he makes a point that um, part of the picture of what has been going on in the Ukraine is that um, the more, some of the more lunatic elements in the Nazified uh, uh, group of people that uh, have a great deal of influence in that country have, have more recently been receiving Very heavy cannon, which is capable of uh, quite devastating attacks. And uh, the town or city of Donetsk has been bombarded incessantly for some time, leaving to a number of, well, many people in that uh, Russian-speaking area to find refuge in Russia itself, just to get out of the joint because uh, of this incessant bombardment. So just my issue is uh, it's all very well to say, well, don't do anything and we can demonize people like Putin. And I'm, I'm not holding a banner for him, but uh, there is part of that picture there that um, um, there are people who have legitimate concerns internally within uh, uh, the Ukraine. And surely we have to pay attention to their needs, uh, they, they are victims themselves. And uh, I don't altogether go uh, along with the idea that somehow you suffer totally intolerable attacks on your on your people, on, on your life, and do nothing about it. Uh, ironically, it may be that Putin, for his own reasons, obviously, is responding to that. He probably has to respond to that uh, attack on these people. And uh, well, it's gone much probably further than he, than he would have wanted to do. But then again, he's facing—I mean, you know—the very nature of the of the U.S. Uh, uh, is is uh, something that um, I mean, I've spent a lifetime watching, you know, the bastardry of these people from Vietnam to now, and you just wonder what does it take to pull up these these fascist pigs that rule from Washington. I'm, I'm I'm at the end of my bloody tether as far as they're concerned. And, and I have and the way they've treated people like Julian Assange, they they protect their war criminals. They attack the right of people to, in fact, find out the truth. And uh, I just think we've got to uh, um, you know be far, far more savagely critical of these people. Good That's on
2: you, it. Dave. Thank you. Right on time. Um, What I might do is just take another question or two and then have um, William and Sam respond, if that's okay, Um, just to keep things moving along. Um, Now Will, uh, I'd like to invite Will to ask a question next. Over to you, Will.
0: Yes, um, thank you, hello. So I um, I just wanted to mainly ask like, first of all, can I, can I see this um, recording and like play it back for for later viewing?
2: Yes, it will, it is um, being, well, the discussion, no, but the talks, yes, they're being uh, live streamed on YouTube. So the video will be available to uh, watch and share uh, following this forum.
0: Okay, thanks. And um, another thing as well is like what, what is it specifically that we are protesting against? Like um, obviously like I'm really anti-war myself. So are we pro- protesting against like war itself and um, like in favor of Ukraine or is it is it something else like um, imperialism or something like that?
2: Okay, thanks Will. Um, not sure what city you're in, but um... The the two uh, events that I referred to in the announcement, um, both have demands attached to them. So certainly the one in Sydney is uh, no to war uh, troops, Russian troops out of the Ukraine and no to NATO expansion uh, is my recollection of the demands there. But perhaps someone could share those um, events up on the chat box and you can have a look at the one that relates to where you happen to live
0: okay yeah thanks
2: thanks for that will um now i've got a few more people who've indicated i'm just going to now take uh take may who has a quick comment reflection and then i'll hand it back to william and sam for responses thanks may
6: uh thank you both speakers it's absolutely fantastic uh, speech. Uh, I'm one of the people who did live in the Soviet Union era for years. Um, I lived in the Ukraine. I've got friends Russian in the Ukraine. Um, just again to, 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 to um, reinforce no justification to war at all. Uh, I went back to the Ukraine after nearly 20 years and the change was really big. What really, really was sad for me is to see that yes, the Soviet monument, the war monument, were totally, completely neglected. And there is something that's called the, um, well, in Russian is Vechny Agon, which is um, the uh, lifetime or whatever uh, fire that has been uh, left there to remind the world of the Second World War. Actually, in, in the Ukraine, this uh, this fire was not going that it has been put uh, put out. And it was really, really sad. So there were big changes. There were big changes saying that that was not justified the invasion. And the second thing from me being from the Middle East, myself and living the Lebanese war back then and seeing all what's happening as well in the area between Iran and, and Hezbollah and Lebanon and coming and going and, the negotiation and we do this, we do that. And of course, Americans are involved. My big question would be, Would is there any possibility that America is gonna sacrifice the Ukraine for what can Russia give America and the Middle East?
2: Thanks, May. Uh, I'll uh, hand it back to William first, if you'd like to respond to Dave or May's points. Yeah, thanks. Um, in fact, the, the three questioners or commenters,
3: um, they fuse they, rather nicely, in fact, um, David's comment and question about, particularly I suppose he's talking about the Azov Battalion, the arming of the, uh, the extreme elements, the bombardment of Donetsk and so on, really does highlight the fact that <laughs> wrong is on both sides that to take an arbitrary side is a real mistake. And that the fact that it also plays up the idea that the media is so powerful in all of this, you've really got to poke around and dig about to find out that even handed monstrosity that is going on. Uh, but it is going on and um, how the media are actually controlling, not that sort of the debate, because there's no debate going on. They're just really informing people of what is right to think and we will think the appropriate way. So David's contribution there is, is really significant. It sort of feeds into what Will's talking about, how the protest movement here, who are we protesting about? What is it all about? With well, clearly it is about the general idea of protesting about war and also specifically about the real mongers here. And the real warmongers at the end of the day, as I said earlier, the blame needs to be sheeted home to the US because without their behaviours, without their policies, without their foreign policies, without their domination, these issues wouldn't really have been able to flower. And finally, May, um, it's really is a fascinating idea. The idea, that she brought through, uh, having spent time, lived in the Soviet Union, knows people on both sides of those borders. And for so long, those people on both sides of those borders were, saw themselves as just being one people who were Soviets. Um, and the, the, the hideous symbolism that she spoke of of the extinguishment of that flame. Um, I have actually seen that flame and that was astonishing. I didn't know that that had happened. And that is, if in any other way, a great and gross symbolism of what this whole thing is all about. So thanks to you three.
2: Over to you, Sam.
4: All right, yeah, look, first just to the the big question that um, that Dave posed is speaking of the US military hegemonic juggernaut, um, you know, what's gonna stop these bastards or something to that effect, I mean, it's going to have to be the only thing that's ever stopped them in the past. Um, it's going to be, it's going to need a mass peace movement uh, and genuine anti imperialist struggle um, in the South, in the global South and in solidarity with it in the North. Um, and, you know, we should remind ourselves that um, the Western powers aren't too fussed about um, whether Russia is democratic or not, despite their um, pretenses on that score. If, if Russia were, pursuing an economic policy that was independent of the west but was also democratic they would be even more hostile to russia just remember just remember how hostile they were back in 1917 so that's you know that's that that's that's the world we're in on this question of the situation in the donbass look i'm not going to pretend to be a real expert on it My everything i've read suggests that since the the signing of the the second Minsk Accords that there was pretty consistent breaches of ceasefire um, across the line of control from both sides. Both sides accused each other of not fulfilling the Minsk Accords. So in the case of the separatist side, the, the fact that um, Ukraine still had really heavy weaponry um, right up near the, um, near the line of control. Uh, on the side of the Ukraine, they would say part of the Minsk Accords was that foreign powers are supposed to not be present in the Donbass and Russian forces are really there. But of course, that would that would get contested. I think in the last couple of years in particular the um, you know the the possibility of there being a compromise that you know not all sides would be happy with but a compromise nonetheless was un- was, was was blocked both by the the far right in Ukraine who would just scream sell out traitor um, if any Ukrainian government tried to negotiate some kind of deal um, and also US policy i mean it just seems you know i, I don't think the US wanted the um what, what, what the war, war, war resolved it either. As I said at the outset, I was surprised that Putin did go down the path of full-scale invasion and occupation. Um, I was fully expecting the possibility of Russia recognizing the Donetsk and Luhansk um, people's republics as um, and possibly moving troops and, uh, and forces into those zones as a way of saying to Ukraine, um, if, if you try to move on this territory, then you'll have a full-scale war but the ball's in your court now. Um, so, but anyway, look, I think whatever the case, the sort of the Minsk Accords are all a bit sort of, it's all a bit academic now in the context of this war. Um, the, the only real sort of principle that holds is that the people of the Donbass themselves should have the democratic right to decide um, what 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 they want. They want to be part of Russia. Do they want to be integrated with Ukraine like they were before, or do they want to be integrated in Ukraine, but with special autonomy, as was... Um, Provided for in in the in in the Minsk Accords that ultimately that should be up to them, um, not up to us, not up to Russia, um, and you know, and or or politicians in Kiev. Um, In terms of what basis for peace, I mean, I've been wondering how this thing is going to end. I I I gave two sort of grim scenarios about how it could play out. Um, A more positive one would be, for instance, peace. You know, Russia getting a bit bogged down in the war, looking for a face-saving way out. Peace negotiations in which Ukraine. Agrees not to join NATO and to be neutral, Um, but I think you know Zelensky is going to need a payoff for that as well, Um, and I think that's um, from what I can, you know, my reading of it. That's why Zelensky has um, yesterday or the day before um, made a big show of you know this is our EU um, application form, you know, Um, because um, getting EU membership and EU money in return. For saying to russia yes look we won't join nato we'll be neutral that would be a pretty good that would be a pretty good outcome for for, for Zelensky. i would have thought but is the eu prepared to bankroll that um i've no idea uh, i know dicks on the dick nichols is on the call list the green left correspondent in, in europe he might be able to offer a view on that one
2: perfect segue sam um thanks for those comments sam and william um yeah i would like to uh, hand over to to Dick, and uh, Dick, Dick um, as Sam mentioned, is our Green Left correspondent in uh, Barcelona and very happy that you could join us, Dick. Not sure what time it is where you are, but um, over to you.
7: Sunny winter morning here in Barcelona. Uh, not a very sunny political scene, though. Uh, I, I just want to report on a demonstration we had here yesterday. Which, which dramatizes the problems that we're discussing about the aims of the peace movement and what's the, what, are the, what are we calling for? What is the move? should the movement be calling for? Because we've got here in Barcelona, a permanent vigil by the Ukrainian community, which is quite large in Catalonia, 25,000 people. Uh, and of course, the, understandably what they're calling for is that uh, arms be sent to help resist the Russian invasion which I personally support, um, this has been a big debate on the, Euro- on the European left, as I reported in the latest article, which you can imagine. Uh, but when you've got a 100-metre-long, 100-kilometre-long uh, set of Russian tanks heading towards Ky- Kyiv, you can understand why that's the demand of the, of the Ukrainians here. Uh, the Ukrainian committee uh, community here is not right wing there's no evidence that I can see of you know as of detach as of battalion style people in it it's just a, a very ordinary community of people uh, looking to make a living send their money back home to the Ukraine and basically the response here is that all the young men, not all, but a very large number of the young men tried to get back to the Ukraine to participate in the resistance. And that's what people are talking about. The word comes up all the time, uh, the resistance to, to the Russian invasion. Um, but the, what I wanted to say was that the demonstration yesterday was the demonstration of the Catalan peace movement. And, of course, this is welcomed by the Ukrainian community, but the Catalan peace movement has, has a, is pacifist purely pacifist uh, and that's understandable given the whole history uh, of uh, of Catalonia and the repression under Catalan rights under the Francoist dictatorship uh, and the there's a big a sort of large debate developed between the Ukrainian vigil and the uh, this demonstration which had uh, 10,000 people at it in the center of Barcelona um, with people from the co- community saying we We need arms, Um, you can't say, don't send us, we need anti-tank weapons and we need anti-aircraft missiles. That's what we need uh, to stop this. Uh, So, But in the end, it was interesting, the Ukrainian vigil disassociated itself from the main demonstration, but then came back to the demonstration to, to, to continue this discussion. Um, so that was that was a sort of heartening thing I thought and um, also it's very obvious here I'm just reflecting on I'm just telling you the story. Um, people remember in this country what arms embargo meant in the Spanish Civil War when the British and the French didn't send arms to support the Republic uh, against the uprising by the Francoists. So that not sending arms to the Ukraine in a desperate situation where, of course, the latest news from from the Ukraine is very bad this morning, Um, not sending arms or not being prepared to help them defend themselves, help the the Ukrainian resistance defend itself, um, immediately hits a nerve. It's a nerve here. Um, I think that it's one thing we have to... Keep in mind in all of this discussion uh, is that this is going to this will be one in the long run by the growth of the pacifist movement the peace movement in the east and in the west of europe and the socialist movement particularly in the uh, east of europe and in much more collaboration and much more uh, discussion between uh, the socialist movement the anti-capitalist movement in, in, in Russia, the Ukraine, and the former social, Soviet Union and uh, socialist republics in Eastern Europe and in the West. And that that con- conversation is still not uh, advanced. You know, hopefully, one good thing that will come out of this horrible business is that that conversation and that collaboration uh, will increase. There's a lot more I could say. Um, I'll just say one last thing, which is, we can say NATO is, you know, is you know, part of the... Well, NATO is the Euro-Atlantic imperialism. That's what it's an attempt to do, It's an attempt by the Americans to control Europe, also to make sure there's no independent Euro- European imperialism that de- develops. Um, that is not felt by the majority of people in Eastern Europe, including a lot of socialists, to be the threat that we identify as, as being uh, to as militarism and as a threat to world peace that's the big problem that's a big conversation that has to be had that's it
2: thanks dick i gave dick a little bit more time um <laughs> uh given you're, you're probably the person who's traveled by uh, internet the long the farthest to be here tonight um and I also noticed that we're joined by Dorian Fertle, who's also another contributor to Green Left, who's based in Denmark these days. So welcome to Durian as well. Um, and uh, Louisa uh, would like to make a brief comment over to you. Perhaps while um, Louisa sorts out her uh, tech issues, um, I'll hand it over to uh, Renfrey Clark, who's uh, joining us from Adelaide uh, to make a brief comment. Over to you, Renfrey.
1: Right, now the Minsk Accords. The curious thing about these Accords is that they weren't meant seriously by either side to be consistently implemented. What they were really is a formula uh, that allowed the situation in Eastern Ukraine to be frozen in place. And what's that meant, well, what that's meant for the past nearly eight years, is um, there's been consistent violations. Um, who's been violating it more? According to the um, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe um, some years ago, um, it was mainly the Ukrainian side that were letting fly at the, uh, at the republics. And certainly, there's, there's, there are plenty of accounts, if you know where to look for them, that show um, apartment corpus, um, apartment blocks in, uh, uh, in Donetsk, you know, with gaping shell holes in the, in the side of them. And uh, whereas on the, uh, on the other side, there are scattered villages, but uh, there's nothing like the same scale of, dis- of destruction. So. Um, the degree of violation on the Ukrainian side hasn't been accurately reported in the West. As I said, you really have to, have to know where to look in order to find that. What's the end game likely to be? As, as Dick was saying, it could well involve a deal involving uh, European Union membership, or at least the proposal of that um, by the Ukrainians. Now, how likely is that actually to eventuate? We have to consider the kind of trouble that the European Union has had with Greece. Um, Greece has a quarter of the population of Ukraine, and Ukraine is very much poorer than Greece. Uh, GDP per capita in Ukraine, in fact, is about on a par with that of Guatemala. So that's how poor the place is. That's an awfully big, um, a big load to digest on the part of the, of, uh, of the European Union. And I'm very skeptical that actually come at that. Uh, the cost would be astronomical. Let's think about what the European Union is. It's um, an attempt to create this imperialist aggregate there in Europe on a scale comparable to the United States. Uh, It involves ingesting countries like Romania and Bulgaria that were very poor at the the beginning of the process, and they've been very, very costly. There have been lots of disruptions and uh, a lot of problems. What would happen if the EU actually were allowed into Europe, if everything there was granted, if there were... Uh, complete freedom of access by Ukrainian citizens to, re- to Europe, you would have literally millions of people heading to the West. In my opinion, the European countries are not prepared to wear that. Um, there would be very considerable problems, and, uh, and they're certainly going to hesitate. What's the response been and from please- the Russian...
2: Sorry, Renfrey. I'm just uh, conscious that you've gone over your three minutes. Um, okay. <laughs> I just—we've uh, just got a couple more people on the call list, but um, could you just make some final wrapping-up comments, and then we'll, we'll move to the next speaker?
1: Okay. I just wanted to say a little bit about the European, the uh, the Russian left. Uh, very divided. Obviously, the Communist Party with Putin. Um, the far-left tendencies generally opposed to the war and even prepared to say so, even though the consequences of that are pretty dire. The smaller of the two large Union Federations, not the Putin one, the other one, has come out with a reasonably good but very cautious statement against the war. That's an indication of the feeling within the working class and it's a promising beginning.
2: Thanks, Renfrey. Okay, now, Louisa, do you want to have another try and see if your mic's working now? Can you hear me now? Yes. Can That's you hear great. me? Yes. Okay.
8: Yep. Um, I just want to comment. I am mm-hmm. astonished from the uh, uh, Western hypocrisy of and the double standard, which uh, reflects on the mainstream media. Um, um, now, when, when, uh, when they were reporting about the attack on Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, and how they turn blind eyes on Israelis' illegal settlement, and um, how they giving the Isra- Israel the green light to continue the longest military occupation in the world in the world history, and no one say anything. So that's I was really astonished and shocked. That's all I want
2: to say. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Louisa. Now we've got uh, Helen and then we'll uh, hand back over to um, Sam and William for responses. So over to you, Helen. Um,
8: yeah, it's it's a lot more complicated than I thought. Um, it's very interesting, but I, I just wondered, um, what is the role of fossil fuels in all of this? Like. Uh, you know, Ukraine is supposed to be high in oil and natural gas and things like that. It's also an economic, um, it's also an agricultural center for food production and things like that. What, like, are there any dodgy deals going on um, in terms of Ukraine's assets? Um, I guess anyone can answer that, Do any of the speakers.
2: Thanks, Helen. Is that all you wanted to ask?
8: Yeah, Yeah. I just haven't heard anything yet about about that. So I thought I'd just um, ask.
2: Terrific, great question. All right, well, we'll we'll hand back to our speakers. We've also got a uh, few more questions popping up in the chat box. So we should have time for some more questions. Um, uh, William, would you like to respond first?
3: Very, very briefly, um, I take on board the things that Dick was saying but it seems I mean fortunately I suppose I'm not going to be the one who's going to be out there trying to turn people's focus into a movement that is going to hopefully stop war and it's an immediate struggle to talk in terms of arming the Ukrainians and find ways of putting weapons into the hands of the people I don't think I might be wrong, but I don't think they need to work terribly difficult. It's very difficult to find ways for them to do that. I think the entire Western um, imperialist structure is doing that fairly nicely. I mean, our own government here have just promised millions and millions of dollars of what they hideously call lethal aid. Um, This is not a one-off just from Australia. I mean, uh, the whole, whole deal is... It just seems to be sort of bristling with, with, uh, with, with potential to, to destroy people. To, um, to build a movement while promoting war is, I think, pretty negative. And particularly when, when, um, when Dick was seemed to be putting together in the same basket um, the positive nature of the pacifist movement, along with the socialists and all the rest of it. Now, how are you going to sell arming people to a pacifist movement? Um, it's a little bit, a little bit puzzling to me. But then again, I'm not in Barcelona. But so I'll leave it. Leave Dix with there. Um, Renfri's, um contribution was was very interesting, very interesting indeed. And uh, he needed more than these three minutes that he didn't quite get. Um, the idea of the Minsk Accords and the uh, the violations, and the fact that the predominant number of violations were seem to be coming from the Ukrainian side. Against those the separatists in Donbas and Luhansk is, I think, fairly significant, and particularly given the state of our manipulated media, um, which again is really what Louise was all about—the hypocrisy of a media that can can put a whole history of of um, oppressions and and, uh-huh. and violations and just general bastardy on one side and just cover it up, cover it up, cover it up. And then we can promote what is really ultimately such a destructive negative thing is the height of hypocrisy. But then again, that is what, Louisa, that is what the media is for. It is because it does work to promote the interests of the state that it serves. And that interest is not, unfortunately, our interest. So, we had a lot of work to do there. Um, Helen puts the question about, are there dodgy deals going on? Well, I don't know, but I would (laughs) rest assured that there are. Um, The Ukraine, enormously rich, Russia, enormously rich in resources. Uh, We hear about what this is going to do to uh, oil prices, gas prices, food prices, wheat prices, everything like that. Now, the fact that as far as I'm aware at this moment, gas is still being shipped, oil is still being shipped from Russia to Europe. Now, if that has changed, it's changed very very quickly and I've been unaware of it, but I don't think it has. And that would tend to indicate that the deals are as dodgy as capitalism can make them.
4: That's about all I've got to say.
2: Over to you, Sam.
4: Yeah, look, on this question of weapons to Ukraine, um, that's, that's the thorny issue we have to directly confront. Um, you, have, you have to think about, do you support it or not? So if you say that the Ukrainians have a right to resist with force of arms, the invasion of their country, if you think they they do have that right, then for that right to mean anything, then you've also got to defend their right to get hold of those weapons, however they can. Um, it's kind of you, you can't really sort of there's not much room in the middle. I mean, I think you've either got to you either take a sort of a pacifist approach and say we think it's wrong, but we're not going to fight it, or or, or you're fighting it. Um, I can't. I mean, that's not the same. That's not the same as saying, for instance, that I think um, NATO powers should get involved, like for instance the. You know the the Ukrainians are calling for a no-fly zone over um, uh, for the US, you know for the Western powers to enforce a no-fly zone. Well, that would in effect be the Western powers being involved in that, in becoming directly involved in the conflict, which would be a massive escalation of it. The same thing, um, you know, Ukraine calling on Turkey to to bl- block the Bosphorus to the passage of Russian ships, all that be an act of war as well. Um, so that that's a really qualitative e- escalation. Um, Look, in any case, I think, uh, as William says, if the war drags on, then the the Ukrainian side will be getting weapons from from the West anyway. On on this issue of um, fossil fuels, well, I mean, I think there is, um, the US has already achieved some important strategic objectives. Um, The Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline has has been shelved. So gas is still flowing. but Nord Stream 2 was, you know, the whole point of Nord Stream 2 was to enable um, Russia to sell a lot more gas to Germany in particular, uh, and not have to pay a, um, a transit fee to Ukraine in the process. Um, now, the United States was arguing hard, you know, was all along, long before this came, became a shooting war, was trying to stop Nord Stream 2. Both they wanted to uh, be able to sell US fracked gas uh, to Europe instead, but I think probably just as importantly, actually wanted to, to break this developing economic relationship between Germany and Russia and to reassert US primacy uh, in Europe and, and pull Germany back away from Russia um, into the, in, in, into, more into the US fold. And then of course it also deprives Russia of a source of income. On to the, the the thing about the, the media hypocrisy, I mean. Uh, yeah, look, it's infuriating. It makes my blood boil like it does everyone on this chat, but let's, you know, we live in a capitalist society and it's capitalist media um, that manufactures consent. And if you live in a first world country, then it's pro-imperialist media. That is our media. Um, so, I mean, it just, it, it, you know, there's just, it, it's, it, we notice the big events, but the little events are part of it as well. I mean... If 10 people die in an accident in the United States, that'll get 10 times as much coverage as a ferry, a ferry sinking in Bangladesh or the Philippines, because the lives of people in the global south are worth less. That's, that's how, you know, a hundred years ago, it was white man civilizing mission, colonial empires, all that sort of stuff, it was, it was, it was kind of very explicit, but the, the message that the lives of people in the global south are worth less than those in the north is just, we're awash with it. We're so awash with it, we don't even notice it. Um, um, we just notice the really crass, vile um, cases like 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 we've like we've been pointed out with the Palestinians or the situation in Iraq and, and so on. And I um, mean, it's just it makes that point that we can't depend on their media to tell to tell the real story of what of what's going on in the world.
2: Thanks, Sam. I'd uh, like to now call on Sarah to uh, speak. Over to you, Sarah.
9: Hey comrades, thank you. Yep, Sarah from Water on Country. Um, yeah, thanks to William and Sam. I thought that was really informative, but also accessible for people that um perhaps haven't been following um the ins and outs of it as closely. Um sorry, I heard both the talks, but I, I missed a bit of the discussion. So if this has been answered, um just ignore it. Um but I think Sam and William, you, you both um I guess gave a nod particularly to the anti-war or peace activists in Russia, um, which you know you have to say it would be incredibly brave to be an anti-war activist in Russia at the moment. Um, I'm just curious um, as to you know what the makeup of those forces is. Like you know traditionally it'd be uni students or unions or um, is it socialist groupings? Like what what's behind that? um I think I saw there was something there's so much floating around and it's kind of hard to verify everything and know what's true um but I think I saw something floating around on social media which was an open letter from Russian health professionals so it was nurses doctors and paramedics had signed an open letter um opposing the war so I'm just curious if there's other sort of snippets or or stories like that thank you
2: Thanks, Sarah. I'll uh, now hand over to uh, Jacob and then uh, Durian. Thanks, Jacob. Over to you.
0: Hello, comrades. Um, so I would, um, this, I'm coming to you from Wandry Land um, in Melbourne. Um, and I guess I want to kind of make a contribution of this a bit of, uh, on some of the, I guess, the observations that I have made in terms of some of the debate that has been happening, I guess, in the broad movements, um, especially in Europe. Um, and I guess it's quite clear to me that one of the terms of responsibility of the left in the Western country is that we cannot actually concede, it's actually, we, cannot concede the question of what we do in terms of when we rally against the war on, on in in um ukraine because at the end of the day uh the liberal establishment is very happy for just people just simply just protest and condemn russia uh and then at the same time what they're using is they're using the pretense of this Russian invasion to basically raise the case for more militarism, more increased war um, war funding, et cetera. Um, And of course, we even, thanks to the actions of um, Russia, um, now we have a situation where uh, Sweden and Finland are now considering NATO membership. And I think this reflects a very kind of dangerous sort of development, especially in the context of the fact that, you know, I have to acknowledge that in in the context of Australia, the anti-weak stage, but I think the thing is, this is actually the opportunity that we can take to actually rebuild the anti-war movement, because at the end of the day, there's clearly thousands of people being um, horrified by uh, Russians' invasion of war, they're not all, not all of them are are 100% convinced of the liberal kind of imperialist sort of line. And really it's up to really to the left to put forward that alternative vision um, and actually put forward a, a program that actually does actually advocate for peace and doesn't just go um, behind the sort of liberal stadium, because you know there are a number of you know left like intellectuals who are coming behind it, and I guess the other issue, um, which is I guess the issue I think of Russian phobia, and of course it offers a, a kind of prelude to what could potentially happen, and of course this concerns me a bit as someone of a Chinese background. This kind of basically you're kind of seeing this sort of move towards authoritarianism from Western governments, where you have this, like for example in Italy there was a situation where, in response to this invasion, uh, a university decided to ban the teaching of Dzovskovey, a a classic Russian author, just because of his association with Russia. They eventually backpedaled um, because of the decision, uh, because of the backlash. But it's like, this is the kind of ridiculous kind of things that we're seeing quite regularly in the the Western media. And it's basically trying to sort of create this sort of um, phobia and chauvinism against uh, you know, against the Russian community and um, in who happen to live in Western countries and basically trying to paint this sort of image that, you know, anything that's tarred with, that relates to Russia is, you know, evil and has to be defeated. And, and in fact, I can think we can see the same thing going to happen in, against China if a, if a war situation ever develops in that context. Um, so I'll finish there because it's time to wrap up.
2: Thanks, Jacob. Uh, over to you, Dorian.
10: Uh, Comrades, greetings from a sunny uh, spring morning in Denmark. Uh, Maybe it's because we're closer to the war in Ukraine that it's warmer here. Um, (laughs) uh, Just a couple of quick points on the thing about the EU membership. The European Parliament uh, voted for a resolution two days ago uh, which accepted the application from Ukraine for preliminary, so the application to join. So they haven't let them join, but the application process has begun. So they're formally an ex- accession country. And this is an attempt to sort of bring them within the the, um, the broad ambit of the EU and it's a statement of uh, of intent. Uh, it's very unlikely that Ukraine will ever join the EU. They, they're simply not going to meet the criteria, the Copenhagen criteria, for joining. But it's a political statement um, designed to say, this is our turf. And in fact, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, who used to be the German defence minister, uh, said, they belong to us. And this sentence was included in the resolution as well, and was endorsed despite an attempt by the left group to remove it. Um, So very possessive, very aggressive, very triumphalist language used by her, by the foreign affairs spokesperson for the EU, um, and in the context of Germany rearming in a way that has not been seen since World War II and taking an aggressive international military stance, the situation is at least where I'm sitting, feeling like it's uh, escalating quite, quite quickly, <laughs> and could go beyond that much faster at, 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 with the, the smallest of, of pretexts. The, the, you know, a show of strength gone wrong, and something could 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 switch. Uh, and in this context, while we should first and foremost. Put the blame for this at the feet of Putin and Russia, um, acknowledging the historical context and reinforcing that, and raising it at every at every turn because we're not allowed to talk about history anymore. But it's Putin that invaded Ukraine um, in this way in in these in this week, and we should con- condemn that. Um, who arms the Ukrainians now, and who calls for that arming? To me, doesn't sit so comfortably that the left in NATO countries in Europe is doing that. Um, Certainly, they should get weapons. Certainly, they have weapons. They've rearmed significantly since 2014. But we have a situation now where NATO countries across Europe are sending weapons as governments, as states, to Ukraine. Um, they're not putting boots on the ground, but the, 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 there's a line of differentiation. But how, where you read that depends upon your intent. And if Putin uh, intends to read it as an escalation by uh, NATO countries, he could, very well could. One of the things Discussed was potentially sending fighter jets. There's been a rollback from that claim, but the, that's the idea is in the mix now. And with the disinformation war that's going on, the, the propaganda war, the, the risk of, of something like this crossing a line is just where I'm sitting, concerning. Uh, I do tablets are selling out in Denmark at the moment. People are maybe it's a little bit over the top, but people are genuinely concerned that we could be heading down that path and the the language coming from from brussels the language coming from washington is not setting anyone's uh, hearts at ease here and the the focus on peace the focus on anti-war i think needs to be at the heart of what we're we as a left call for um calling for the right of the ukrainian people to resist yes but calling for weapons i'm yet to be convinced that we should be the ones making that call maybe we should but i'm I, i'm yet to have an argument that actually flipsing over to 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 doing that. Um, at least from a country that I'm sitting in, where there's also talk about US troops setting up a base here and being a forward um you know a, a forward station for for US imperialism and NATO imperialism in, in in Europe. Um this is part of what's uh escalated the situation in the first place and we don't want to be contributing to that while also campaigning for a peace. So I just wanted to mention a couple of those those issues and the concerns from this perspective where I'm where I'm sitting and yeah,
0: have a good
2: talk. Thanks, Dorian. Um, okay, I'll hand back to uh, William and Sam now uh, for some comments, and depending on how things, uh, where we're at after they finish speaking, we we'll, we may wrap up there um, unless there's any final questions. So over to you, William.
3: Yeah, um, first, as far as My comment to Sarah is my abject apologies. I am not an expert in what's going on on the ground with protest movements in Russia. I would imagine just on previous history of anti-Putin movements in Russia, it would certainly draw those forces who have traditionally been anti-Putin, anti-authoritarian, anti-right into that struggle. uh, And courageous, They must be because the track record of of the way Putin has handled protests has been pretty pretty awful. Your comment also, Sarah, about working class activism, um, health workers and so on becoming involved, is encouraging and shouldn't be surprising because I know it sounds like a cliche, but we're talking about ultimately A class struggle that's going on, and it is developing. And peace becomes, in this case, struggle for peace becomes an element of that class class struggle. So, of course, workers who are involved in the well-being of ordinary people on the street, health workers, would, in all conscience, would have to be involved in such campaigns. However, the ins and outs, I don't know. I don't know the composition. This is. this is slightly beyond my ken. But um, to Jacob, then, and I do apologize, Sarah, but to Jacob, some really important stuff coming out there. Um, in particular, particularly the idea of how, in this case, the Russophobia becomes a cover for a growing authoritarianism. And we have seen it over and over about China in this country. And that's built over a number of years, which is reinforced and allowed and given all sorts of armor to the worst sorts of elements in this country. And that's come from the media. It's come from international editors, newspapers, like the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. It's come from academics like Clive Hamilton and his discovery of millions of potential fifth columnists amongst the Chinese population. Whenever you want to create an enemy, the first thing and the best possible way is to demonise like fury. And we in this country and all over the world have had a not terribly rich history of doing just this. In this country, it's been a long, long, long history of anti-China sentiment and anti-Russian stuff. When I was a little boy, just down the road from where I was was living uh, down by the seaside, there were these batteries that were the good, the good citizens of Hobart were going to protect themselves against Russian invasions back in a previous Crimea, Crimea event, back in the Crimea war. And we've been waiting, waiting almost with bated breath to whip up enough fear, anxiety and stress against an invader who is the other, that it is of course not at the least bit surprising that Russophobia, um, Sinophobia, is on the boil, because if we're gonna have an enemy, let's create a demonized one. And thanks for that, Jacob, for raising those points. Um, And Durian, you are able to speak far more clearly about the conditions where you are in Europe. When you talk about sales of iodine uh, going uh, through the the roof because people are, are fearful, people are worried, of course they are. And rightly so. When you talk about the the German rearmament, um, biggest since World War II, it changes the whole nature of Europe, really does. And people have got a right to be concerned. And I take on board and I am pleased to hear that you, you say that as the risks are getting greater, it's not necessarily our job on the left to say, let's get, armaments to the combatants. There's never going to be a problem with that. They're always going to get plenty of those. And I'll just round this off by just asking us all to remember, yes, Putin has done this hideous act. Yes, Putin, as you say, Duran, is the cause of this particular problem. But that bigger problem, and you say about we're not allowed to look at history, you're quite right. We are kept absolutely in the dark from these sorts of issues. And what causes the issues, what causes the problems, what causes the crises are always at the same root cause. And that is imperialism and its demand that it dominate and control the world and take unto itself the wealth of that world and of the working people. So thank you for that.
2: Thanks,
4: William. Over to you, Sam. Yeah, thanks, everyone, for some really um, some really good uh, thought-provoking contributions. Uh, so just picking up a few points. So I noticed uh, Costa's already made a point that I was going to in the chat that um, German, Nord, Nord Stream 1 is still flowing and, German, and Germany's still getting 40% of its gas from, from Russia. And you should note that those... Um, Bank tra- transfers for energy payments um, are still allowed, you know, by the, uh, you, know, and, you know, Western sanctions haven't haven't uh, nobbled them yet. Um, so be- because it's a it's a practical question for, for Western European capitalism. Uh, there's no doubt that there is some mad Russophobia um, accompanying the, the whole sanctions stuff, and just the the crushing hypocrisy of it as well. So you know, um, you know f- 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 FIFA banning Russian teams and allowing expressions of support for, um, for Ukraine when you, ne- when you never w- were allowed to for Palestine or Russian athletes being you know, banned from participating in things. Um, when of course, uh, Australian, British and American athletes were never ba- banned from anything um, because of the invasion of Iraq. And I mean, that serves as a reminder to us that it's, it's a- only the imperialists get to impose sanctions, nobody else. Um, that's that. That's the way they work, and I think we should be very clear that sanctions that hurt um, ordinary working Russian people are ones we should be against. Because sanctions sanctions aren't a soft aren't a soft form of war. They are war. Um, I mentioned in my presentation the the lives that were lost because of sanctions imposed on Iraq. So I think I think the peace movement that we're trying to build needs to be very clear about that as well. Um, it was interesting to hear Durian's uh, mentioning the, the EU thing. I mean, it it strikes me that the, the EU is throwing Ukraine a bone um, without actually really sort of promising it anything. And that, I mean, in time, that could, actually, that could actually mark out a weakness in the Western position as well, um, because, you know, I'm sure they're very happy for Ukraine to be a military thorn in the side of Russia, but are they prepared to um, give Ukrainians a Western standard of living? Well, they're... They're not so that's that, that that's their contradiction so they've got contradictions as well final thing i was going to say is um although i think the ukrainians have a right to resist the invasion i think our peace movement does definitely need to raise the demands of uh negotiations and de-escalation um all wars end in negotiations and the sooner this one ends in negotiations the better
2: Thanks, Sam. Uh, I think we've got a final question from Nico uh, and then we might wrap things up. So Nico.
1: Yeah, hi. Um, I'm just asking about with all the um, Global Day of Action stuff about a petition and thanks for the link to um, the um, code pink one. The Stop the War Coalition UK has one, but it's a paper one. Question I want to ask is if we adopt the code pink one because it is good to have some sort of action at these rallies, we're having one in Newcastle. Who should we address it to? You know, the the demand is that Russia withdraw and that no expansion of NATO, but who should it be addressed to? That's a very pragmatic question.
2: Thanks, Nico. Um, I think uh, certainly that's something that could be be discussed, over the coming days. I mean, I think the way that the anti-war protests have come together, uh, certainly in Sydney, has been through reviving some networks that um, uh, have just literally just come together in the past couple of days to call a protest. So so that, that might explain why there's sort of no official, you know, anti-war, Australian anti-war movement petition uh, that's made an appearance um, at the moment. So I think probably, you know, a a call on the Australian government to to take some international leadership around pushing for talks and de-escalation would certainly, um, and around the question of accepting Ukrainian refugees and expanding Australia's humanitarian intake to allow that to happen so that it's not at the expense of other refugees who are trying to enter Australia would certainly be two points that uh, could be included on that, um, uh, on such a petition. But yeah, most likely it, it's something that, uh, that it, within the Newcastle Peace Movement that I know you're, you're based up there, uh, you know, could have a discussion about if if, um, if if something could perhaps come out from the movement itself. Um, otherwise I'm sure members of Socialist Alliance uh, can have a discussion offline about um, producing some kind of petition uh, nationally that, uh, that could be used in different cities. They're just some points off the top of my head. Um, I don't know if others want to add any further points. Um, there may well be other points that, that also could be raised uh, within a petition. In addition to the general express expression of opposition and condemnation of the uh, the invasion and um, NATO expansionism that has really escalated um, things to where they're at um, where we find ourselves today so I hope that hope that response is helpful to you okay well we might uh, wrap it up there unless um, uh, William or Sam want to make any final comments I, I sort of took your last set of comments as fairly, fairly much final wrap up. So just uh, like everyone to to join me in uh, a virtual applause to our speakers. Um, And to just remind you again, that um, there is an anti-war protest happening this weekend in Sydney, 1 p.m. at Sydney Town Hall and in Newcastle on Sunday as well uh, at 2 p.m. in Civic Park. And for those of you who are close by or living in Melbourne, uh, next weekend, Saturday, the 12th of March, 12 p.m. at the State Library. And I'm sure other cities and centres will hopefully join the list of um, actions. Oh, Canberra's got one. Thanks, Reece. Um, on Friday from five to 6 p.m. Uh, in Canberra, assuming that's probably at Civic. Um, uh, so, yes, and Green Left will certainly endeavour to promote uh, all of those anti-war protests uh, happening via our social media and website. Uh, big thanks again to our speakers. Uh, special thanks to Dick Nichols and Doreen for j- both joining us from, uh, from Europe. Uh, it was really good to have your insights. Um, and please stay in touch. Please uh, do become a supporter of Green Left if you're not one already. Uh, and make use of the links that have been shared in the chat um, to find out more information about Socialist Alliance. Thanks everyone, stay safe. And those of you affected affected by the flood emergency, please stay high and dry um, and look forward to seeing you at our next event.
0: I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.